Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Please hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talita kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jess, for reading such a long passage. Um, as we'll see here, it's the nature of these sandwiches that we need to have a full picture of what the author of Mark is doing in this passage. And, um, these two narratives. Um, maybe as, you say, as, as expected, maybe, but we are going to continue in what has now become a little series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark with a particular focus on one particular literary tool that Mark, the Gospel writer, uses to communicate profound truths about the person and work of Jesus. 
I've used the term in the past, this will be uh, uh, sandwich number three, but I've used the term in the past of a Markin sandwich, uh, which is just a term that uh, scholars have used to describe a tool that Mark uses uh, to bring together two narratives to illumine the person and work of Christ. And as we've seen, uh, the theme of Christ in the Gospel of Mark as the suffering servant and the Son of God. Mark, with uh, such precision, constructs these passages uh, in a way that there's really one primary way uh, to understand the narrative. That, that's the point of this um, interlude um, about this woman with the flow of blood that Jess just read. So what I mean by this is that Mark begins a narrative and then intentionally interrupts it in efforts to prepare the reader for a right response to the conclusion of the narrative. And this sort of sequence or this type of tool is used by Mark um, nine times. And I've come to think about this, um, this structure of, of, of how Mark teaches us, how we're supposed to be viewing Christ in these instances. I've come to think about this like an eye doctor. This, this middle narrative is like an eye doctor for us. There's an initial assessment of one's eyesight, followed by some eye drops, dilation, and then that scope that they use to assess your eyes. Or we could think about this middle section, this, this middle uh, narrative, and in our case, this woman with the, the flow of blood as LASIK surgery. Both of these uh, processes are used to assess and improve our sight. And Mark does this with the middle sections of these sandwiches. The second narrative uh, introduced by Mark in each of these passages is meant to correct our vision and to give us a right response to Jesus in the first narrative. So I used the word precise earlier because Mark goes to great efforts to ensure the reader is understanding precisely who Jesus is. And we'll get into that here in just a minute, those attributes of his efforts here. But when we come to the scriptures, uh, this may be a familiar term for some of you, maybe not, but I will, I will define it. This type of literary tool um, is what we need to understand uh, in response to how I think we at times think we can read uh, texts. Um, so when we come to the scriptures, uh, reader response theory, that may be a new term to you, maybe not for some of you, I will explain that in just a minute, but it's, it's not allowed when we come to God's word. The scriptures themselves dictate to us how we should read them. And I think the sandwich is a perfect example of that. And for those of you that haven't heard what this theory, this reader response theory is, um, I think you'll be able to quickly identify that a lot of people use this type of hermeneutic with all of their reading. But this, um, this theory states, uh, reader response theory identifies the significant role of the reader in constructing textual meaning. Now that, sound, that may sound like lofty scholarship sort of language, but what we need to get at, and maybe a type of question like this would help bring some clarity here, have we been to a Bible study where the question has been asked, what does this text mean to you? That this is a type of reader response theory that we need to reject as Christians. And I think the Bible and Mark puts on display here with this literary tool precisely a rejection of how we're supposed to read the biblical text. We're supposed to do our hard work of navigating the text in a way of understanding what God's intended meaning is, not what I'm bringing to the text. We don't sit at any point above the word of God in our reading of the scriptures. 
When we come to the scriptures, it is the reader that is impacted by the text, and at no point does the reader dictate the meaning of the text. Maybe you've heard it said, we've said it here in adult Sunday school a couple times, but scripture interprets scripture. We let the Bible speak on its own terms about the Bible, that sort of language. The reader is never sitting above the text and deciding what it means. And it's our job as believers to work hard at understanding God's word. We do this in community. Uh, We do this in private. We do this through prayer. And we do this through the efforts of the historical church, which which has come before us and has preserved this true gospel. So would you pray with me as we plead with the Lord to provide us with his word and its meaning this morning. Father, as we've seen from Deuteronomy, the fact that we have your word um, leaves the nations in awe that we have a God so near to us that he would speak to us with such righteous laws and such a righteous word a word that is not far off, but is very near. It is in our hearts. It is in our mouth. Father, this is the word of the gospel. Um, And for those that are saved, this is the word that you have preached in our hearts, causing us to see the gospel of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ. So as we unpack these two narratives from Mark, Father, may we see more clearly who Christ is, the power uh, that he has and the power that is work, at work within us through the Spirit. Bless our time now in this passage and keep any words uh, from my mouth that might be unhelpful or untrue um, from these people. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the text has already been read, the primary question of this text is how does the story of the woman with this hemorrhage help us understand the situation with the ruler of the synagogue's daughter? We're supposed to understand what Jesus' interactions with the woman with the flow of blood and her healing, and and, and with that interaction, it gives us eyes to see the power of Christ with the desperate situation of Jairus' daughter. So if your Bibles are still open, please look with me at a few uh, features in this text that Mark wants us to pick up on. I want to draw a connection between these two narratives as we dive in. I want you to see the emphasis on touch throughout the passage. In verse 37, Jairus implored Jesus earnestly to come lay his hands on his daughter. It is then in verse 27 that the woman who has the flow of blood touches Jesus' garments, for he said, or for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And then in verse 30, after this woman touches Jesus, Jesus says, who touched my garments? And then in verse 31, the disciples, in what I would imagine was an obnoxious or sarcastic tone, you see the crowd pressing in around you, and yet you ask, who touched me? And then in verse 41, we see at the climax of this passage, Jesus taking Jairus' daughter by the hand, touching her, and waking her from death. There's other relationships between these new narratives that we need to see. Notice what Jesus calls the woman who touched him after she falls at his feet and tells him the whole truth. Jesus calls her daughter. And we must remember also that he meets this daughter on his way to Jairus' daughter. So there's two daughters in this passage. Notice also 12 12 years, the relationship between these two daughters. 
We have a daughter that is suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, and then Jairus' daughter, who is 12 years old and at the point of death. And another link between these new, uh, two narratives is fear and faith. Notice in verse 33 that the woman who had uh, been healed from her flow of blood, she fell down before Jesus in fear and trembling. And then in verse 36, Jesus exhorts uh, uh, Jairus to not fear, only believe. And then the last relationship is between these two narratives that needs to be pointed out is the ceremonial uncleanness of both of these daughters. Leviticus 15, uh, 25 through 33 is clear that this woman with the flow of blood would have been unclean for these 12 years with major social and relational constraints. And then in the passing of Jairus' daughter, Jesus touching a dead body would have been grounds of uncleanness and called for one to be put outside the camp. And that's according to Numbers chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4, and Numbers 19, verses 11 through 22. The discharge of blood for the woman and the touching of a dead body were grounds for uncleanness, according to the Mosaic law. So the main point of this passage, and there's just one. We have subpoints, a few, but one main point to this passage this morning And that is pointing to Christ's cleanliness. We'll unpack that here in a minute. I must also point out uh, the narrative of these two un unclean daughters uh, is that in Mark chapter 5, verse 2, so just several verses before our passage, Jesus has just dealt with a man who has an unclean spirit. So when we get to our passage, Jesus has already healed others physically, dealt with spiritual uncleanness. It is in this passage in Mark we get a climax to the power and work of Christ in his ministry. Jesus has the power over physical deformities, whether this is the man's hand in uh, Mark chapter 3, uh, or the paralytic in chapter 2, or the others who are sick or demon-possessed in Mark chapter 1. Jesus has authority over spiritual power, powers, over all physical realities and has been impacted, or that has been impacted by the curse of sin. And so we're supposed to see in this text, in this passage, that Jesus has the authority even over death. Christ even conquers the uncleanness that comes from death. So there is nothing that Jesus does not have authority over. Jesus has authority over every physical condition, ethical and ritual purity, sin, and as we see in our passage, death. And what we cannot miss from this passage is that Jesus is the standard of cleanliness, such that when people come in contact with his cleanliness, he is not affected. And even our final state of death is required to respond to the voice and cleanliness of Christ. The cleanliness of Christ invades all attributes of the curse, spiritual oppression, bodily dysfunctions, sin, and even death. And since the fall in the garden, sin has wreaked havoc on every square inch of this planet. And the effect of sin is death. This was the covenant established with Adam in the garden. He was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to exercise dominion, but God gave the command to, eat of the, to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in that day of it, you shall surely die. Death is the result of sin. And as the Apostle Paul says, 
for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's Romans 6.23. And we must understand that the proper response to the kingdom of God is repentance and faith in the gospel. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 15. So throughout Jesus' ministry, he is overturning the effects of the curse, but it is in our passage that we not only see the final result of sin, but Jesus' ability to conquer, to conquer the last enemy, which is death. Let me make just a, a few more comments here about the cleanliness of Christ and what this passage teaches us about the nature of Christ and the nature of the kingdom of God. If we're acquainted with the purity laws and the Mosaic Covenant, there were two features from this passage that are profound that we probably miss in our context today, and that would have been eternally profound to those who witnessed and experienced these two miracles. What we need to understand about the woman with the flow of blood is how her actions would have impacted everybody in the crowd. Everyone that would have come in contact with her. Her condition would have caused everyone she came in contact with to become unclean and would have impacted her ability to socialize and even worship. And as much as this was a ritual purity, it was about being in right position before God to worship and have fellowship in the community. We learn much about her situation in Mark's account. It's clear that medical resources were exhausted. Her suffering under many physicians, there were no more treatment options. And according to the text, she was growing worse. Not only was her sit, uh, situation not improving, but her, financi her financial resources were all also exhausted. The doctors have been exhausted, her resources have been exhausted, and things were not improving. And this is devastating. But I would argue this condition also implied many other struggles other than just these physical realities. According to Leviticus 15.25, all the days of this hemorrhage, she would have continued in uncleanness. Her bed, where she sat, whoever touches these things would have been unclean. And it's not until the discharge stops, and seven days have passed, and on the eighth day, she would be allowed to bring her offering to the priest before the Lord to make atonement for her unclean discharge. This was the situation for men as well. And in verse 31 of Le uh, Leviticus 15, the unclean person was to be separated from, the, from Israel, lest the uncleanness defile the tabernacle in their midst. Now we need to put ourselves in this woman's shoes, and to a very small degree, we can, given the COVID lockdowns that occurred over the last couple of years. There was 15 days to slow the spread, rules and regulations for about our, going about our normal businesses, how we gathered, where we gathered, what, what to do if we su uh, suspected contamination. There were quarantine requirements. If we had possibly become contaminated or even come into contact with someone who had symptoms, there's a hyper alertness to runny nose, fever, cough, etc. Everyone was aware there was a disease present in our midst. There was an expectation that we were aware of our own bodies and the bodies of others. For at least a few weeks and maybe for a couple years for some, the measures taken for staying healthy and, un and being uncontaminated were high for our culture. But can you imagine 12 years? 12 year lockdown based on the laws in Leviticus 15, extend, uh, extend the lockdown to any personal fellowship in your home, 
any physical intimacy with a spouse, any worship gathering. As we've been studying in our adult Sunday school class, God's laws provided a way for man to have fellowship with God. And when his laws for purity and sin were not followed, his holiness would break out and sin could not exist in the presence of a holy God and it must be dealt with. We are enabled to approach God by his instructions and his laws, but not through our own creativity or ideas. Worship of God ought to be pure as he is pure. This woman was isolated from fellowship, from her people, from a spouse if she had it, or pursuing one, and from receiving atonement in the tabernacle, 12 years. And in, verse, and in verses 25 through 34, it is four times that we see the language of touching. It's mentioned in verse 27 um, uh, that there were reports about people touching Jesus' garments and being healed. And Mark chapter 3, verse 10 mentions one of these such reports. It was her belief, based on the reports, that just touching Jesus, she would be made well. She says in verse 28, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. This woman clearly believed the reports and acted upon her belief. And then in verse 30, the touch of the woman provoked a response from Christ, to which his disciples say, really, Jesus, who touched you? There's a crowd of people here pressing in around you, and you're asking, who touched you? Jesus, in this very question, is pointing to the unique nature of this woman's touch. Remember, Jairus had told Jesus that his uh, daughter was at the point of death. Jesus is on his way to see this little girl who is in her last minutes. The Greek word uh, used in Mark's account to communicate Jairus' desperate situation is eschatos, which means the end or last. It's where we get our term for eschatology, the study of last things. The father knows the condition of his daughter and implores Christ to come quickly. But Jesus stops to find out who touched him. And this might bring some clarity to why the disciples responded this way. Jairus, uh, Jairus along with his disciples, are thinking, we need to get to this 12-year-old girl quickly. There is no more time. These are her last, this is her last time. And Jesus stops and desires to make contact with the person who touched him because he felt that power had gone out from him. What we need to see about Jesus in this moment and his response to this woman is both his human nature and his divine nature. Jesus was truly asking, who touched me? And the woman reveals to Jesus the whole truth as she makes herself known in fear and trembling. So the human nature of Christ appears according to the narrative in his looking around to see who had touched him. But his divine nature is revealed in his response to this woman. Notice in verse 34 that Jesus calls this woman who touched him daughter. We have seen in John chapter 1, 12 through 13 for several weeks with Pastor Seth, those verses read, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are experiencing in our passage, in our narrative, we are experiencing the very reality declared in John chapter 1 with Jesus' interaction with the woman who had the flow of blood. 
Jesus displays the right he gives to those who believe in his name to become a child of God. Jesus can call this woman a daughter because he is in fact God and has the ability and authority to declare this as the Son of God. So the Son of God is speaking on behalf of his Father in this moment. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Verse 34 in our passage of Mark chapter 5 is putting on display the very reality Pastor Seth has been unpacking in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Now I need to draw your attention back to the main point of this passage, namely the invading nature of Christ's cleanness. This woman has been unclean for 12 years, who has suffered at the hands of physicians, spent all that she had and was growing worse, knew that her... She knew that by her pushing through the crowd and touching Jesus, that in her wake she was making everyone who touched her unclean. And in one sense, we can, couldn't we interpret this as some sort of selfish desperation that she would stop at no cost at all to be made well? But we're not left to trying to assess her motive. Jesus interprets her motive for us when he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. The woman's motive was out of desperate faith for Christ to make her well. Her only hope was in Christ's ability to make her well. Her pursuit of Christ was her last and only hope, just as it was for Jairus and, and his daughter. And it is in this passage that we see Christ's response to those that come to him in the posture of Jairus and this woman with the flow of blood. This woman's motive was to be made well, but at the heart of her desire was faith in Christ's ability to save her. All three gospel accounts of these two stories make no mention at this point of Jesus instructing anyone to present themselves to the priests and to offer sacrifices required to make atonement for their uncleanness or their sin. This would have been utterly jarring for the people there involved. Jesus his disciples, the crowds, nor the daughter's parents were instructed to make themselves clean from their contact with unclean people. And this is what I mean by the nature of Christ's cleanness. In his presence, when we lay hold of him in faith or when he touches that which is unclean, it is the uncleanness that is affected. The purity of Christ is left unmarred by the uncleanness of those around him. And he has the authority to declare things clean or unclean as the high priest and as he knew he would die for the sins of his people. No atonement was necessary for himself, for he himself would be that atonement when we, lo when we lay hold of Christ in faith. Now there may be some here that have been sitting in uncleanness. and Maybe it's been longer than 12 years. You feel the spiritual separation from Christ, his people, and maybe even the people around you. And just like this woman who is utterly isolated and the situation is growing worse, the uncleanness is a daily reality. Now, I'm not talking about ritual uncleanness. This portion of the law has been fulfilled in Christ. And it... And Jesus, though, in this moment is not only talking about the, the cleanliness of the Mosaic Covenant either. Jesus explicitly teaches in Mark chapter 7, just two chapters later, 
Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, for from, for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a person. So according to Jesus, defilement is much deeper than becoming unclean by bodily discharges or touching a corpse. Some of us may have quickly brushed off the story of this woman with an unclean flow of blood and its relationship to your state. But you would be missing the fact that apart from laying hold of Christ in faith, we are left unclean just like her. Maybe covetousness has filled your heart. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it is sensuality and the desires to see, um, the desires to, to be pleased by things like food or false intimacy with the things of this world. We are supposed to see our own uncleanness in light of who Christ is, just like this woman did. And it is with the full account of Mark's gospel that we can make the jump from this ritual uh, uncleanness to the impurity and uncleanness of our hearts as God sees it. This woman models to us how we are supposed to respond to Christ in light of our uncleanness. This woman came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Her whole being submitted to Christ. She knew that what, she would, that what, what would come out of um, his mouth would be definitive. Just as a doctor, just as no doctor was able to help her, this woman knew of Christ's authority and even crippling physical realities and his authority over them. This woman prostrated herself before Christ confess the whole truth, and Jesus responds by calling her a daughter and that her faith had made her well. We must see from Jesus' answer that it was not his garments per se that made her well, but it was her faith that made her well. Was this not also Jesus' response to the four men that lowered their friend down through the, through the roof in Mark chapter 2, verse 5? The healing that occurred was on the grounds of faith and the power of Christ. Not his garments or some mystical belief in holding on to the, 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 a man's clothing and a baseless hope for healing. As the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to convict us of sin, have we been, have we been clinging to that? Have we been clinging to something that does not allow us to cling to Christ? What are we grasping for to which our hands are not able to hold of Christ in faith to be made well? Is it a printed value on a paycheck? Is it recognition from our neighbors or co-workers of our success? Is our hand tied up by a mouse on the computer? Maybe we see the end of our condition. Sorry. May we see the end of our condition from Christ as hopeless, just as this woman and Jairus did. May we see that apart from truly understanding our condition apart from Christ, we will be forever grasping at the garments of this world only to be left in a worse state. And I'd like to make just uh, one more point here about the, the type of cleanliness that Jesus is offering. This faith that produced the healing was not simply about a physical healing. 
In verse 34, when Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well, the word that Mark uses for well is sozo, which is the word to save, or the same word that we use for salvation. It is this language of saved, paired with fear and trembling and falling down before Christ, that this was a complete healing, not just of the woman's illness, but of her soul. The link between confession, the truth, and salvation used by Mark is to make clear that this faith was a saving faith. And if we pair this story with the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof, Jesus says, even before telling him to pick up his bed and walk, what does he say to him? Your sins have been forgiven. Notice the two-tiered response of Christ. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman was able to be at peace with God and her neighbor in light of her taking hold of Christ in faith and the healing of her body. So the primary way we are supposed to respond to the kingdom of God as it is being made manifest in Christ is to repent and believe the gospel. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The right response to Christ is submission, an understanding of our condition in light of God's holiness, confessing our sin and clinging to Christ. When we are shown our uncleanness by the Holy Spirit or our brothers and sisters in Christ, may this be our posture and response. Submission, com uh, confession, and clinging to Christ. We, have, we all have a flow of blood that is unclean. And the only blood that can deal with this uncleanness is the blood of Jesus. There was no need for the crowd to present themselves to the priests or to offer sacrifices for their uncleanness because Christ would become that sacrifice and that purity of his blood. His blood would cleanse their impurity. And that was contracted, that was contracted because of sin. So we receive Christ's cleanliness only through faith. It is Christ's purity that overcomes and invades our impurity. So the call is for us to cling to Christ in faith. There's one more point from this text that I want to make, and it comes from the statement made by those uh, who came from the ruler's house to tell Jairus that his daughter had died. Look at verse 35. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? This is certainly the low point in the text. At the beginning of this passage, Jesus is made aware of the seriousness of Jairus' daughter's condition, and he is making his way there to see this daughter. And news comes while he's engaging with this woman that it's too late. She's died. And despite the news of her death being true, which is made clear by all the commotion and the mornings, uh, uh, the, the, the mourning and the loud wailing at the house that his daughter had passed, they were convinced she had passed. Those who brought the news made an assumption about Christ that is devastating. Look at, their, look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus says that it was the woman's faith that healed her flow of blood, but he also calls her daughter. We are supposed to draw a connection to these two daughters and faith. The woman who was healed is called a daughter, 
because of her faith. And notice Jesus' response in verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. It seems clear from the narrative that Jairus would have seen Jesus' dealings with this unclean woman, heard, her, heard his response to her, and in verse 36, Jesus is calling Jairus to not fear and to have faith, to believe. Jesus wanted Jairus to have the same faith that this unclean woman modeled. Now, up until this passage in Mark, Jesus has healed various diseases, physical ailments, spiritually oppressed people, and even received obedience from the wind and sea. But it seems from these, um, those reporting the news of Jairus' daughter, death, that they did not believe Jesus had the power over death. And it's at this low point in the text of telling Jairus, Jesus is no longer needed, don't bother the teacher anymore, that Jesus puts on display his power over life and death. Notice, it is Jesus' pronouncement that she is sleeping, not your daughter is dead, that was true. Jesus is the one who has the definitive say over everything in creation. Jesus has the last word over any matter, and in this case, it is death. We're supposed to see that nothing in all of creation is outside of Christ's jurisdiction or control. Even the dead respond to the voice of Christ. That which is not responsive and has no ability to respond, responds at the voice of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is John 1, 1 through 4. The decisive voice of Christ in calling the woman with the flow of blood daughter and the daughter of Jairus, little girl, rise, is the word of God in flesh. His voice is decisive. His power and purity cannot be corrupted. And it is faith in the Son of God that allows us to be at peace with God and healed of all of our defilements. And the greatest of these defilements is indwelling sin that leads to death. The work and word of Christ impedes, invades, and sustains our faith. And I must admit, verse 35 hit me the hardest in my sermon prep. This response of those that came to inform Jairus of the terrible news was that there was no need for Christ to come um, and continue his journey to the house. They say, why trouble the teacher any further? But Jesus' exhortation to Jairus is, do not fear, believe. Jairus can choose to rest in the conclusion of those coming from his house or in Christ's call to faith in him. And how many of us, this is where it hit me, how many of us have responded this way to Jesus in our lives? How many of us have been praying for God to move in our families or to save those that are lost? Or God to intervene in a particular relationship or our constant battles against a particular sin? With the ceasing of our prayers, are we not saying in our hearts, why trouble the teacher anymore?
Why trouble the teacher? Hope is lost. There is nothing that Christ can do. We say this when our prayers stop. When fellowship, with the sa- when, the, when fellowship with the saints is set on the back burner. When our Bible reading stops. When we stop pursuing our spouse or that really difficult person that God has put in our life. Are we not like those bearers of bad news when we, say, when we uh, cease to pray for the salvation of the lost that God has put in our lives? If your marriage is rocky, have you adopted this posture of no longer bothering Christ with these matters? Because hope is lost. Is there a relationship in your life right now that you have lost hope in Christ's ability to break through? According to this text, we are exhorted to cast aside our fears of what appears to be a hopeless reality and believe in the resurrection power of Christ. Maybe there's something in your life right now that you have pronounced your final assessment on the matter. But may we see from this text that Christ's assessment of the matter is different. We see death, and Christ says, rise. We are left in this passage with Christ's decisive word even over death. There is no reality to which the voice and touch of Christ cannot make alive or new. So may this passage ignite our faith in Christ's ability to deal with all matters of uncleanness, even death. May we never adopt a posture of hopelessness. What is troubling to Christ is when we adopt a type of fear that keeps us from coming to him. What troubles Christ is when we do not see him for who he is. What troubles Christ is when we're coming to him with demands instead of confession and faith. What troubles Christ is not trusting him in our current situation. So in closing, this passage shows the power of Christ when we lay hold of him in faith. Faith is the means by which power comes forth from Christ. Faith is what drives us to Christ, and it is Christ's power and cleanliness that cleans us and raises us from the dead. What we need to see from this text is that we are both daughters before we have dealings with Christ. According to Ephesians 2, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy and because of his great love, even while we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. And for those that are in Christ, we must continue our fight against sin, which is done through confession. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 reads, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At each step in our life of faith, it is Christ's power that has raised us from the dead, and the life he gives us in the spirit that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Death was not too much for Christ to overcome, and neither is indwelling sin. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded in this text of our need to be saved from sin, for which the wages of sin is death. 
We are both daughters in this passage. We are the daughter that cannot respond until you say, rise. And we are the daughter that is unclean before you. And the only way we get right and clean and pure before you and are able to enjoy right fellowship with you and our neighbor is by you washing us with your blood. So, Father, we confess our sins to you this morning. We do not want to be a people that hold on and cling to our sins. We want to cling to Christ, cling to his garments. As just a, as just a, a few chapters later in Mark, we see the example of the Syrophoenician woman that says, even the crumbs of Christ's table are enough. Father, may we cling to Christ in faith. May we not be those that bring the news of why trouble Christ. May we be petitioning for salvation. May we be confessing of our sins. Father, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Here's your benediction this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, un undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You are dismissed. <laughs>